This marks the 500th episode of the Emergency Medical Minute. Thank you for being a loyal listener and tuning in to the podcast that keeps it real, raw, and relevant. And stay tuned because the Emergency Medical Minute has more big things on the horizon. This is the Emergency Medical Minute, sponsored by Health One. On July 10th, 2019, the Emergency Medical Minute and CarePoint hosted a panel with 10 speakers on a wide variety of topics. This is Dr. Dave Saintsing with his 2018-2019 Rapid Fire Lit Review. All right, that sounds great. Hey, guys, welcome back. Welcome back. Dave Saintsing, I work at North Suburban. Introduce myself. And I will say that following a psychedelics, Jimi Hendrix uh, lecture with research, uh, you know, might be a little bit of a yawner. Uh, so we'll see if we can, uh, we can keep you awake. So let's talk about sleep, right? Perfect segue, right? So sleep, we do know that sleep deprivation and sleep abnormalities, significant risk factor for obe- uh, diabetes and obesity, right? So there was a really interesting study that was done that looked at, is there a way to mitigate this if we allow for catch-up? And so what they did was they took a group and said, okay, nine hours max a night, and you're our control group. And then another group, they said five hours max a night, which is probably more like what we did. And then the other study group was five hours during the week, but on weekends, we'll let you catch up as much as you want. And we'll look at three markers. How much do you eat? How much weight do you gain? And insulin sensitivity, right? Which is our risk for diabetes, for evolving diabetes. And in the two study groups, um, catching up totally failed. It completely failed. So insulin sensitivity at day three for both of those groups that were deprived, including the catch-up group, was significantly diminished. Um, and also, caloric intake went way up at night, late night. So basically, after your last meal, five to 600 calories on average for both of those groups. So basically, catching up did not work. So why does this matter? And this is how I'm going to follow all of these. Why does it matter to us? This is not an ED patient encounter issue. This is our life, right? So we live in a state of sleep deprivation, chronic shift changes, so buyer beware, right? So new PAs to the group, beware. Do what's required to take care of yourself. This is the kumbaya version of research. But take care of yourself and just know that there are risks to the life that we've chosen. All right. Tramadol. Why do we prescribe it? Is it really prescribed much? About 25 million prescriptions a year in the United States. Why do we prescribe it? Well, let's just be honest. Anybody, why do we prescribe it? So we don't prescribe the Percocet or the Vicodin or whatever, and we don't have to have the conversation, and they'll walk out with a script, right? That's why we prescribe it. It's the soft opioid, yeah? So what, what is it really? So it's an SNRI, right? Serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. It's basically a fexor initially. But once you ingest the tramadol, it gets broken down in the liver, So the metabolite after liver metabolization is called M1. It's actually called something else, but they label it M1 because it's much shorter. And M1 is an extremely potent mu agonist. And the mu receptor, that's our opioid receptor. That's what gets upregulated when you start taking a lot of Percocet and leads to addiction issues. So it seems like great pathways should work. Well, here's the problem. 
Well, there are many problems. Here's problem one, which is genetically, about 15% of us are non-metabolizers or slow metabolizers. And so what that does is it just leaves it behind as basically Selexis and SNRI. And you don't get a lot of pain relief from it. And that's what we're telling people is we're gonna provide you with some pain relief, right? About 15% are very rapid metabolizers. And those folks can become heavily sedated and even potentially overdose with just a regular dose of Ultram. And other medications can also prevent metabolism. So Celebrex, Paroxetine, SSRIs, they all limit because they're competing pathways in the liver. So they limit our ability to metabolize and end up with M1, so they also don't get pain relief. And if those people happen to be on Zoloft and SSRI, then they're at risk for basically those side effects or even potentially serotonin syndrome. So there's significant risk for it to actually work or not work. There's significant risk for side effects. And we know that the primary side effect that we all talk about and hear about Bortez seizures, right? Lowers the seizure threshold. Significantly lowers the seizure threshold. If they drink, the seizure threshold comes down further. And other medications can also lower the seizure threshold. And we all have probably seen patients that have had tramadol-induced seizures. Another side effect. Interesting recent study which showed that in type 1 diabetics, and pretty well-designed prospective study, about 50% of people have significant hypoglycemic episodes, another potential side effect. And oh, by the way, you can't give it to the elderly, which would not include Neil. You can't give it to, preg you can't give it to pregnant patients, which would not include Neil. And you can't give it to kids. So we have a biochemically crappy medication with significant side effects and a limited population that you can give it to with massive abuse potential that really doesn't affect people's pain the way we think it will. So think twice before you give it next time about the risk that the patient is taking on. And maybe you should just have the difficult conversation, which is I'm not comfortable prescribing you your Percocet or Vicodin. Um, and here's the plan, but it won't include tramadol for what it's worth. That's my opinion. So moving along. That's so sad there. I know. Sorry. Sorry, Ted. I knew that was going to hurt you. So the 800-pound gorilla in the ER is sepsis, right? There's a sepsis committee everywhere, right? CarePoint's got one, ACA's got one, North Suburban's got one, Neil's HOA has a sepsis committee. They're everywhere, right? You can't, you can't, you, you, that's right. You can't get away from it. So let's talk about it, right? Because it is important. It's significantly important. So the next three pieces of research that we're going to talk about deal with deal with sepsis. So the first one's resuscitation. So let's talk about what that means and why, why it's an issue in sepsis. So if we're talking about it, we presume that somebody must be under-resuscitated, okay? So they are intravascularly depleted. If they're intravascularly depleted, that can lead to hypoperfusion, right? Which is the definition of shock, right? So if we are hypoperfused and shocky, then we resuscitate people. How do we measure this? We measure this using lactate, right? Q two to four hours, we get a lactate. If that lactate is greater than two, pre-shocky, greater than four, shocky, right? So we follow this metric. That's what we do. But that presumes that an elevated lactate means we're in a state of sepsis-induced hypoperfusion by definition. That's what it presumes. And it presumes if the lactate is trending down, then we are adequately resuscitating that patient. But here's the rub. Are there other things that elevate lactate? Albuterol. Yes, albuterol. There are many things, right? So medication is one, right? So that's exactly right. Chronic liver disease, 
right? I'm sure we can name plenty. Ketoacidosis, many malignancies actually elevate lactate. So there are other things that do that. So the Andromeda trial, which was in 2019, it was published in JAMA, said, let's, let's take a look and see if there's something else that we can follow. And what they chose was capillary refill. It was a really well-designed multi-center study done in the intensive care unit setting. And basically they said, you are either gonna be exclusively lactate metric or capillary refill. And the way, right, we all probably do capillary refill differently in here. And what they did was very standardized and something that we could never do. They used some kind of crazy microscope. But they really did. But this, the, the results were fantastic. So in the capillary refill group, mortality was reduced by about 43%. And in the lactate group, uh, or pardon me, mortality was 34%. In the lactate group, it was about 43%. So it was down about 9%. And then in addition to that, when they looked at various morbidities, the morbidities dropped as well in a statistically significant manner. That first number is P, I think, 0.06. So it's not quite statistically significant. But it was interesting. So what do we do with this? I think what we do with this, lactate's not going away, right? At least it's not going away now, or probably anytime soon. But you can add this to your war chest of how you evaluate patients. So I often will talk to physician assistants or nurses or whomever will listen to me about looking at skin. Like, are they modeled? Are they not modeled? Do they look hypoperfused? I mean, it's something in the blink of an eye that we can get information about. You can go touch the patient. I guarantee you, you can get a capillary refill time faster than you can get a POC lactate. I promise. So add that to what you do with the patient. Lactate's not going away, but this will help you. I promise. So we are resuscitating the patient with that 30 cc's of crystalloid per kilogram. And then we use our capillary refill or our lactate, and we're not making headway, or they're not making urine, or they just look like crap. And you're like, I, I don't think this patient's adequately resuscitated. What do you do? Do you give them another 30? And then another 30, right? It is the common thing, like, when do I start pressors? When do I start pressors? So there was an interesting study that was done also in 2019 in the Journal of, I think, Restoring Critical Care Medicine that looked at if somebody comes in and based on their lactate, they're presumed to be in shock, okay? Not pre-shock, but lactate greater than four, they're in shock. Then right out of the gate, everybody got 30 per kilo. Everybody got 30 per kilo of crystalloid. But the control group got a placebo with that. And then the study group got levofed right out of the gate immediately. And then they looked at how they did. So at six hours post-arrival, 74% of the study group had presumed sepsis control, or pardon me, shock control. And only 30% of the non-pressor group had shock control. Mortality at 28 days, which is often how we look at mortality in sepsis, was significantly reduced. Again, it was more than a double-digit uh, reduction. And then side effects or morbidities, such as pulmonary edema, cardiac dysrhythmia, were also statistically significantly lowered by early pressor intervention. What do we do with this? Well, the likelihood that we are all just going to start levofed out of the gate is pretty low, but I think the potential for there to be more investigation at a care point level, conversations to be had with our intensivist colleagues, and perhaps in the next year, two, three years, I do think that we will see more studies and probably earlier intervention with pressors because the data was, was really quite profound in a very well-designed study. 
mitigation. So these sepsis folks come in, at the end of the day, we're just trying to keep them alive, right? We just don't want people to die. Well, there was a study that was also published in JAMA that looked at how well or what is our ability to actually prevent death in a septic patient. And they broke it down into multiple categories, but at the end of the day, 88% of patients that died from a sepsis cause, 88% either one, could not be prevented, or two, were highly likely to not be preventable. It's crushing, right? 12% of patients that you see that will die, you can do something about. That's a really low number. Why? Well, some of these people have severe arteriosclerosis, ischemic heart disease, you know, substance abuse issues, malignancy issues. They come in with a deck loaded against them. Karma. Karma. And at the end of the day, well, that's exactly right. At the end of the day, you know, you guys are all fantastic providers, but people die. And so there has to be some approach to sepsis, this massive 800-pound gorilla that's looking over us that recognizes that despite your best efforts, people are going to die. And in this case, it's the fourth most common cause of death in the United States. A lot of people are going to die. Um, so giving yourself a break, being humble about what's really going on, doing the best that you can, but then being at peace with whatever happens after you've done your best. And in the meantime, in the background, we'll continue to research what can we do to maybe move that number from 12 to 15% to 20%. And eventually the interventions will maybe have more of an impact. But at this point, right now they don't have as much impact as maybe we would like to all think. So try to keep it under 10 minutes. That's it. Questions, thoughts, comments? Right on. If you enjoy the Emergency Medical Minute, please help us out by rating us on iTunes. For more free medical education, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Make a donation and subscribe to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com.